All right, well, the children are leaving with their leaders, and today we're staying in here so we can advance our messages pertaining to the seven churches. <clears throat> and this week we, we move to Revelation chapter 2, the very end of Revelation chapter 2, because with today's reading we actually finished the chapter as we move into our fourth of the seven churches, which is the church at Thyatira. We refer to the map once more, as we mentioned last week. You can see the proximity now of the seven churches, continuing that clockwise motion as we started with Ephesus and moved our way now to the fourth church at Thyatira. You can see it's due east then of our last church at Pergamum. It's about 45 miles east of where we left off last week at Pergamum. You also notice there a picture of the remnants that archaeologists have found of the church at Thyatira. But the thing we must really know about Thyatira before we do any reading or examination is that Thyatira, the church is known as the Dark Church because it directly relates to the Dark Ages of Christianity, which is about A.D. 590 to about 1000. Now, before we do the reading today to end the second chapter of Revelation, which then also has the fourth church in it, let us expand a little bit about what we're talking about. When I say the Dark Ages of Christianity, let us understand what we're really referring to and what that meant. Because many scholars suggest the Dark Ages were ushered in by the fall of the once great dominant Roman Empire. And while that is the case, what we need to know that is significant from that is that is a major event in church history. Because unfortunately, in regard to the church, everything that was once sacred, everything that we still even view today as biblical and doctrinal and sound teaching from the Bible, at that time, like it somewhat is today, was greatly challenged, which led to a complete deterioration of the church. The situation then was that the Roman Catholic Church was predominant. Back then, there was not yet denominations that we exist, that exist today. There was not Baptists, there was not Methodists, Presbyterians, none of that had yet existed. So there was only the Roman Catholic Church. But when this was being challenged on biblical and doctrine and, and so forth, there a great divide began to ensue between the Christians. As the Catholic Church began to institute certain things they wanted to put into place in certain doctrines, and they insisted upon a hierarchy that must exist within the church. A couple of those very specific doctrinal issues that were brought to the surface at that time within the church was the worship of the Virgin Mary to be made part of the church service itself. Also, they began to ponder and talk about the idea and concept of purgatory, both of which are not biblical doctrines and sound. So then Orthodox Christians rebelled. As a result, religious conflict arose within the church, spinning the church into a very non-productive and non-harmonious time. In short, the church was infiltrated with many false doctrines and pagan practices, which slowly corrupted the church and led it into a time and age of darkness. To say the least, during those years when that was being challenged, it was a period, a time of religious struggle. It was a time in which pagan, heathen, Gentile practices and doctrine were greatly mingled with blasphemous worship of false gods and idols. And then what we're going to see as once we read the text, is that this seems to be precisely the situation that's occurring in the church at Thyatira. 
That's why it's called the Dark Church and relates to the time in church history as the Dark Ages. Well, with all that, then let us stand this morning as we honor the, read of the, the reading of the Word. We're in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, and it says this in verse 18. And so the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, again, John writing these words, he said, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast until uh, hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father. Lord, we're thankful for the reading of the word today, Lord. We just ask, Lord, that you'll lead and guide and direct us in this time of message. We pray, Lord, as we begin to discuss the church of Thyatira, that, Lord, we would better understand the situation occurring, but then also see, Lord, how that still may be applying today. So let us have application that we can learn from and then maybe make changes in our lives, particularly maybe those of our children who are young of age those leaders of tomorrow. We pray, Lord, with that then that you lead and guide and direct us. And just ask, Lord, the Spirit would lead today and let's accept your message as is written, as given. Thank you again for the reading of the word and for your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as you're being seated, note there's a lot that's written there about Thyatira. I mean, you may have noticed, but if not, let me explain to you that this is the longest of any letter that we have talked about. This is the fourth church, and this is by far the longest of any letter sent to any church that we've talked about thus far. But it's not just the longest so far that we've recognized. It's also the longest of all seven letters sent to the church. So with all that, then, the the longest letter, there's many places in which we can start. But before we go and actually start dissecting and applying the letter that's being sent now to the church of Thyatira, let us learn a little bit because it's helpful to know about the city and the church that the city is located in. So again, we noticed on the map earlier that it's just east of Pergamum. Again, I mentioned about 45 miles due east. But the situation that we find in Thyatira 
is not exactly like that at which it was in Pergamum or Smyrna, which means the beautiful scenery and the, the mountainside hilltops overlooking the Mediterranean Sea is not what exists also at Thyatira. We don't see the beauty at Thyatira like we did in Smyrna and Pergamum. But it still is an important city because it was, it was through commerce that Thyatira made its name in wool and linen and apparel and the dyed goods and leather work and tanning and bronze work. Now associated then with that commerce that the city was known for was a very extensive trade union or a labor union or trade guild in which they played a very prominent role in the network of the social, political, economic, and religious activities throughout the city. Because in each particular guild, labor guild, or labor union, with its own patron deities. They would have feasts, they have seasonal festivities, which included sexual revelries. Now, religiously, the city was not all that important. They did give some worship to Apollo and to Artemis, and that was maybe most prominent. Although we do find in the book of Acts, in chapter 16, verse 14, that Lydia is mentioned as coming from Thyatira. You may remember in our study of the 12 Extraordinary Women, we talked about Lydia and how she was actually a trader of the purple goods, which means she was wealthy. But she took that wealth as Paul converted her to be saved and to be in the hub of Christian activity and the gospel being sent throughout Asia. So that's the things that's notable about Thyatira as a city. Again, not religiously important, a little bit about Artemis and Apollo but they each had their own labor union of the commerce that was within the city that had these sexual revelries that would exist. Now, it's unfortunate, as we learned about what Paul tried to do in Thyatira with Lydia and with Lydia's efforts of her own to be able to become the hub of missionary activity, that the church didn't seem to last. I mean, we find in verse 19 and 20, verse 19 always tells us, we find each letter there always seems to be a remnant within the churches holding fast. I mean, a small group of people that continues to do the right thing. Here described as loving and faithful or servants who are patiently enduring. That remnant always exists. But notice right after that remnant is identified, there always is a, a condemnation and a rebuke. And we find it in verse 20. And verse 20 tells us then that it seems like the majority of the church is having blatant sin, tolerating and practicing sexual immorality. Notice the reference to Jezebel is included in the rebuke to the church, which means when we have to slow down and call a quick timeout because now we have to talk about who is Jezebel. So we answer by first noting that this must be figurative, not literal, because the real Jezebel has been dead for nearly a thousand years at this particular point. But the real Jezebel is written about in the first Kings, as she was the wife of King Ahab, one of Israel's most wicked, evil kings. As Jezebel married Ahab, she brought with her the worship of false and idolatrous pagan gods, which she had convinced her husband, the king, to worship as well. So Jezebel's reference is really to the idolatry and the sexual immorality that's occurring even when they were king and queen. 
So the question really now is like, how bad is it? I mean, how bad was then the false and idolatrous worship? Well, going back to Jezebel within the storyline of 1 Kings narrative, we learn that she persuaded her husband to build a temple to Astarte. Astarte is the goddess whose religion made sexual immorality part of worship. Yeah, it's kind of hard to believe. She convinced Ahab to build a temple to Astarte, who is the goddess of the religion that included sexual immorality as a part of worship. I can't even imagine that. But the Jezebel, the evil, wicked, idolatrous queen, even supported over 800 prophets that she wanted to kill all the prophets of God. It's noteworthy that her husband, the king, Ahab, and in the relationship that the king and the queen seemed to have together, that, that she was probably more dominant than he was. It was even mentioned by some scholars that he was afraid of her. And maybe rightly so, because she was wicked, she was evil. Even the prophet Elijah, as mentioned in 1 Kings 19, was afraid of Jezebel. I mean, he ran for his life, as you find in 1 Kings 19, verse 3. He was afraid, he arose and ran for his life. To get away from Jezebel. But at least you read the first king's narrative later, you find that he faced his fear as he got at least enough courage to go up and tell Jezebel that upon her death, she'd be eaten by dogs. Let's talk about first Kings 21, 23. So as it relates to Jezebel, let it be summarized as such, that she was the epitome of immorality and idolatry as was apparently Thyatira. Look once more again at the rebuke and condemnation they received. Verse 20. He says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet of us, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. He says, then I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, they confide together, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. And I will strike their children dead. This is amazing, the rebuke and condemnation they receive. I mean, in the detestable, figurative manner, Thyatira is described as having committed adultery with the wicked, evil Jezebel. And Jezebel may be a legitimate woman within the church, or simply figurative to be symbolic of what is actually happening of the evil taking place in the church. Either way, the church at Thyatira has taken a step further than where we left the church at Pergamum. Going back to Pergamum, rather remember rather quickly that they had simply accommodated and accepted the doctrine of Balaam and Nicolaitans, as mentioned in verses 14 and 15. They accepted that. I mean, they kind of accommodated it. But Thyatira is worse. They're worse than Pergamum. As one commentator put it, what was tolerated and accepted, accommodated at Pergamum, was actually proclaimed from the pulpit in Thyatira. An amazing. And sure they, have, they did not rebuke Satan from their presence, and the church gravitated to wicked, evil practices. They have moved past the tolerating 
and accepting the false doctrine and began to preach it and teach it to others. They have completely and totally conformed to worldly standards and morals. They completely abandoned their faith. It's a small remnant exists, yes. But for most of them, they completely abandoned what they knew to be true, even worse than Pergamum, and began to teach that then to others. They've accepted everything the world was teaching them within a city and conformed. Now listen, when that begins to happen as it did then, it is indeed a very, very dark place. I mean, you could hardly even call that a Christian church. In better words to describe it might be a dark satanic church because that's what they're teaching. That's what they're practicing. All the immoral activity they could indulge in, they was actually practicing and teaching that to others. Now think about that happening to our young children. And think about the question, is that what the church is becoming today? Each week that we've had so far in our series pertaining to the seven churches, we've asked that question. Is the church we're discussing today, at that moment, at that week, is that representative of the modern-day church? Or maybe better yet, the question needs to be very specifically, is the current church doctrinal position moving to a Thyatira? Are we today, in church in general, moving to a dark place? Is it that bad today that the practice of sexual immorality is accepted and no longer proclaimed as sinful from the pulpit? Because that's what was happening in Thyatira. To answer the question, maybe we actually have to back up for a moment and define sexual immorality. A secular definition of sexual immorality as I found it, is not really so helpful. The dictionary says the sexual immorality is the evil ascribed to sexual acts that violate social conventions. I don't even know what that means because it was not very helpful to me. So I thought, well, let's dig deeper. Let's consider the source that really matters, the Bible. So in the New Testament, the word that most often is translated as sexual immorality is porneia. That's the Greek word, porneia, which basically also means or can be translated as whoredom or fortification and idolatry. If you just want to boil it down, make it rather simple, we could say it really means a surrendering of sexual purity. But notice from the Greek word porneia is where we actually get our English word pornography. Now, with all that in mind, we can actually state then that sexual immorality, a better definition is this. Any type of sexual expression outside the boundaries of a biblical-defined marriage relationship, which is stated basically in Genesis 2-4, and our Lord repeats in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4-5, of a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Basically, the idea of a man and a woman being united together in marriage. So with that, then notice that the biblical definition and standard of marriage brings us back once again to how the modern-day practice today is to accept same-sex marriage. We mentioned it last week, and it seems to come back up again. But Pergamum, we made a reference to some churches today 
that have completely accepted the false teaching and definition of marriage. We specifically mentioned a few. I'm not picking on any particular church or domination, but we found that those embracing today of same-sex marriage is the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, Presbyterian Church USA, most recently United Methodist Church, and United Church of Christ. All those churches have either completely accepted the worldview of marriage or began to accommodate the worldview. But notice, as I mentioned that again this week and had it on a bulletin for PowerPoint last week, I did not list or mention a Baptist church. But not so fast. Even particular Baptist churches seem to be conforming. It seems that certain Baptist churches in this world have gravitated and began to accept what the world is teaching. Case in point, many years ago when I was living in Texas, a very good friend of mine named Leon had a daughter, his only daughter, who was about to be married to another woman. Now, Leon come to me greatly distraught when he learned of his daughter to be engaged to another woman. I mean, he struggled emotionally and he struggled physically. Emotionally, he spilled out his disappointment to me over the decision his daughter had made. He, when he and I talked, he actually labored over whether he should go to the wedding or not. He thought, do I go and does it show that I approve this? Or do I not go and let her know that I'm not approving this? I mean, he he toiled, he labored over whether to go or not, and it drained him emotionally. So much so physically that he could not sleep. And it's all because he knew that was not God's way. His dad, Leon's dad, was a Baptist preacher. He knew it was between a man and a woman. So then with, with his dad being a Baptist preacher, and now with his daughter making that decision, and with all his struggle he was having, he, he went on further to explain to me what of all that bothering him, he said, well, maybe Kurt, what maybe bothers me the most is that he was his daughter was going to a Baptist church in Dallas, Texas, and that pastor was going to approve the wedding. The Baptist pastor in Dallas, Texas, that she was attending was approving the marriage and was going to do the ceremony. And he and I talked about it. We thought we'd never see that day. And Baptists don't do everything right. But yet so far we have talked about how we are conforming to the way of the world. Now our convention has still taken a stance. But notice how some Baptist preachers and teachers are still now accepting and gravitating to what the world is telling us today is defining marriage, which is not biblical sound. I mean, not all churches are doing that, and not all of them are practicing sexual morality as I'm suggesting. But the fact that some are may be proof that we are back in the dark ages. We're back in that time when doctrinal positions that stood for centuries are being challenged, which is exactly during the time that represents the church of Thyatira, with the Roman Catholic Church making all their changes that split into many different denominations as a result of. It all started with a challenge of sound biblical doctrine. And the result here, then, is the acceptance of sexual immorality. 
So if that is so, and I'm suggesting to you if it's not already happening here, then we're quickly approaching it. Then we all need to heed the advice that Paul told the immoral Corinthian church, which is found in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body. We need to hear that our body is the temple. If you're a born-again believer, the Holy Spirit dwells within you, which makes your body the temple. And we should never do anything to tarnish the temple. But here's the thing. We're hearing that here today. But society doesn't teach that truth. I mean, yeah, I may be preaching actually to the choir, but society doesn't teach this truth. You cannot pick up a newspaper to read it, open a magazine. You cannot turn on a TV, even go to a movie without being barraged with sexual immorality. It is everywhere today. It is penetrating the hearts and the minds of the children today. Because studies show children are the ones watching that TV and that garbage the most. Many years ago, they had the sitcom that was immensely popular called Fringe. I have watched some of the episodes myself and I find it sometimes quite humorous. But the thing that actually has always bothered me about that popular sitcom Friends is that they never conveyed anything but how it was acceptable to have sexual relations with someone else. They'd never talked about, never had anything about sexual purity at all. In fact, is, is sexual purity even mentioned anymore? Not so much. You find some ag- uh, organizations and agencies where they get permission to go into the school and they talk about it, but for the most part, it's not mentioned. Sexual purity is not mentioned at all hardly anymore. So with that, what we recognize, we must do is proclaim the truth. I mean, while the world promotes the pleasures of sexual immorality, we must inform the believers, especially the young children, of the downside to pursuing such pleasures. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, or men who practice homosexually will receive the kingdom of God. I mean, let the word be given to the kids. Or to the adults. As Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. Do not associate with the wicked Jezebels of the world. There seems to be too many of those still around. Do not conform. Stand your ground. Now, in case we're wondering why we maybe should take a stance, let's return to the text to find out the consequence for those who continue their way. In our text, we find in verse 22, it says, Behold, the consequence is written. I will throw her onto a sickbed, referring to Jezebel, but also those who commit adultery with her. And I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead. All the churches will know that I am a he who searches mind and heart. I'll give each of you according to your works. Notice in verse 22, basically states, For those who do not repent, 
for those that continue their evil, sexual, immoral practices, tribulation is imminent. There'll be wrath, there'll be judgment, doom will occur. And while I may not say those words exactly, make no mistake that judgment will occur for those who associate, for those who practice the sexual morality that the church of Thyatira is known for. Notice the rebuke states, I will throw her onto a sickbed. It's not worded as such, but that is judgment. John MacArthur says, having given this woman Jezebel time to repent, God was to judge her upon a bed. Since she used a, a luxurious bed to commit her immorality, he has given her a bed in hell where she would lie forever. Which echoes some of what Paul's talked about with the immoral Corinthian church. That they shall repent their way. But notice also, we can't get past the fact, it kind of sticks out there in verse 23, that it says, and I will strike her children dead. I mean, that seems really troubling. Which could be referring to, or meaning the suffering would extend down to the fallen generations of the children. But there's another interpretation I found interesting by some scholars. Verse 23, where it says, strike or kill her children dead, may not literally mean children, but rather to those who were simply brought up in that environment, who were taught and accepted, those who were accepting this new system and doctrinal teaching. Now, that thought should actually scare us. That should actually frighten us because in our current day, our children are being brought up. They're being taught and accepting the false new doctrine that's given out by many people today. They are not seeking Christianity, but rather accepting the way of the world. I didn't put this statistic back up there, but we put it over and over again how only 4% of Generation Z is accepting biblical doctrine as their worldview, which I like to turn it around and say it means 96% is not. So of all your children's friends, 9 out of 10 or more than 9 out of 10 are promoting something other than what they're hearing in church. So this should scare us. That these children be brought up in this environment. They're being, they're being taught this stuff of accepting sexual immorality. So essentially, honestly, what was once unspeakable has now become the new normal. When I was pastoring the church at Cobra Avenue Baptist Church in Evansville, one day I had an interesting conversation with our pest control man. It was our routine that he would come in once a month and serve as the church for the pest control that we had at the time. And typically what I would do when he would come in is to unlock many different rooms and doors for him to gain entry to, so he could service the church. But on this particular occasion, one day he came in, I could tell he was a little troubled. And as I began to walk around, he began to tell me what he was troubled by. And he began to talk about his daughter, who's a freshman in high school, who has confronted him. The, his daughter confronted him, the father, about a girl that she was attracted to. And upon hearing that, he said that he had all these different things going through his mind, and the very first thing he could tell her is how 
you know, the Word of God tells us that's abominable, how that's detestable. And how God created man to be with woman. But she responded back, which was troubling him, that, Dad, you're just old-fashioned. Today, that's acceptable. It's fresh. It's cool. Everybody's doing it. It's even allowed in schools, Dad. He troubled with it. I mean, all we could do is pray together. Because he already tried to give his daughter the word. She wasn't accepting it. Because she'd been taught and brought up in the environment that is condoning and accepting sexual morality. Let me ask you, do you see the influence of the world's teaching? The double standards that exist now in this day is confusing our children. There's only one standard that exists. It is the Word of God. So Satan is spinning this and using this and attacking our children. The fourth church is described, this Thyatira is described as the dark church. But I'm noticing today that we have our days that seem to be getting darker and darker. In fact, it's a very dark day when in the future our children have been poisoned. And that's where we are. Our children have been poisoned with this garbage. And maybe it's time we should notice. Maybe it's time we take a stand. Now there's more to discuss about what that may mean. But today we find that we are moving. If not already there, we are moving and gravitating to a dark place like described at Thyatira. And it's time we take notice. Father, Lord, this is not an easy message, Lord. I'm thanking you for giving me the boldness and the courage to preach it, how we need to accept the fact that times have changed. The word does not change, Lord, and let's be thankful for it. Let's stand upon the word and begin to teach and preach what's true to our children, to even adults, Lord, who are condoning this type of activity. Lord, we can't change the world, but we can change our part of it. So I pray, Lord, you'll lead us as individuals, as a church, to do what is right, to stand upon the doctrine of God, Lord, to stand upon the word and to teach our children what is true, how it is different from what society dictates. I pray, Lord, we take this message to heart and recognize how serious it is because our children are gravitating in this dark moral time. Let's pray right now for our children and for those leaders who are leading them into accepting this garbage. Lord, we know that you can make all good things happen. So at the same time, let us be thankful for the fact that we have a message, we have a, a recognizing how time has changed, but you can still bring something good from it. We still have faith and trust and believe in you, Lord. So use us here at Crossroads, Lord, to be able to be part of the changing of this mentality. Let's promote the Word of God, Lord. Or whatever way you may mean for us to do that. We thank you for this message today. We always thank you for Son Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.